Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be addressing a uh, maybe a surprisingly cozy topic. We're going to be doing a bit of a, an invention look at the bed. That's right. Uh, we, we love to go to bed, especially this time of year. You know, it's just it just seems like the place to be uh, yeah. <laughs> under multiple layers of blanket. Um, totally over your body. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah. my head f- just between two pillows, just in the utter darkness there. Uh, yeah, I mean, we it's, it's kind of a cliche, especially when it comes to uh, mattress commercials, but we do spend an enormous amount of time in bed. You know, it's, it's, we spend a large portion of our life sleeping, uh, and this is where we do it. One of the sources that uh, I'm going to refer to in this episode is a book that I just started reading called What We Did in Bed, A Horizontal History by Yale University Press, or not by Yale University Press, from Yale University Press by uh, Brian M. Fagan and Nadia Durrani. And in one of their early chapters, they begin with a quote from a writer named Lawrence Wright, who I think wrote on architecture, uh, but who said, uh, from nearly all social history and biography, one third of the story is missing. And that's kind of true. I mean, we've talked before about how a lot of times it, it, it's interesting to try to get a flavor of everyday life from the histories written in a certain place and time. And that can be difficult because the histories that people write about are usually devoted to unusual events or very like like high stakes events uh the the things we think of as making history not what everybody happens to go home and do at night right yeah and and a, a, the big part of that is sleeping and not not as many may i guess you do have paintings of people sleeping but uh, uh, for the most part, it's not the, the stuff of sagas. But it really does define the very texture of our lives. I mean, it, we you know you spend maybe roughly a third of your life or so in bed. And so uh, what's happening there and what form that bed takes probably matters a lot for your experience of the world. That's right. If it's not the center of your house, it's kind of, it's kind of a center of your house. You know, it's like one of the places that you you spend a lot of time. Uh, it it I mean it's 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 one of those things. It's, it's you start talking about it, and it's kind of an, an outrageous overstatement of the obvious. But but yeah, we we live in our beds. Like our beds are a place <laughs> we live. So I was wondering. How did our ancestors sleep before the creation of beds? You know, whenever we look at an invention, we like to ask what came before. And, uh, of course, obviously, we've been sleeping much longer than we've been sleeping in beds. So mm. what was that transition period like? And there's a lot we don't know, but what we do know is kind of interesting. So for one thing, it seems like if you go back far enough, much of the life of our hominid ancestors took place in trees. We were, you know, we were descended from largely arboreal species, and this probably included sleep. And for some evidence of this, we can look to the sleeping habits of our nearest relatives in the animal world, which would be chimpanzees, whose relationship to their environment is, we don't know for sure, but we think is probably pretty similar to that of human, ans- uh, of human ancestors from several million years ago. And in their book, Fagan and Durrani point out that chimpanzees in the Toro Simliki Reserve of western Uganda 
prefer to make their treetop nests out of branches of a particular tree, actually. Like, they're picky about what kind of tree wood they, they want to sleep on. They really like something called Ugandan ironwood. And I went, actually, to dig up the citation on this because I was wondering about the study. And it looks like this comes from a study by Sampson and Hunt, published in PLOS 1 in 2014, that looked at different types of nesting behaviors in chimpanzees in Uganda. And they they sampled uh, 1,844 nests and found that chimpanzees selected Ugandan ironwood for 73.6% of all those nests, even though it was only a little bit less than 10% of all the trees within the area that they surveyed. And they found that this was probably related to certain material properties of the ironwood as wood. They said it was the stiffest of all the woods around, and they said it, quote, had the greatest bending strength of all the trees tested, had the smallest distance between leaves on the branches, and had the smallest leaf surface area. And so I'm wondering if all that just kind of adds up to, well, this kind of tree makes the best natural mattress material. It's like the it's got the best sort of the the best support structure for you, but it also bends is sort of nicely cushioned. Yeah, and the idea too that it uh, there's the smallest distance between leaves on the branches. Um, you know that that brings that makes you think of something that's almost uh, uh, it's almost like it's woven together. You know, mm-hmm. but of course, eventually our ancestors did come out of the trees for the majority of their lives. And the date of this transition is debatable. But uh, Fagan and Durrani write that. Probably roughly two million years ago or so, our ancestors first began to control fire. And it seems that this probably coincided with a transition to sleeping out on the ground in open camps or under the shelter of rock overhangs or caves around fires instead of sleeping in trees. And I, I think that's an interesting possibility that that fire control of fire would be correlated with changes in where and how we slept. Yeah, we can easily imagine the Gary Larson Farside cartoon uh, showing what happened uh, to our ancestors that decided to have the fires in the tree with them. Yeah, that's not a good plan. Yeah. And then uh, Fagan and Durrani go on to mention something that's interesting. Now, this is speculation, but it is interesting to consider the possibility that the introduction of campfires could very well have shaped the development of what we see as major features of human social life. And they give the example of huddling around fires for warmth and for protection against predators during and adjacent to sleep time that could have given rise to increasing habituation to prolonged close physical contact, that this could somehow be related toward uh, repeated sex with the same partner in places otherwise used for sleep, as opposed to opportunistic sexual pairing. Uh, The possibility that if this is true, uh, the authors write, quote, Pair bonding may be a recent feature of human evolution, and it's intriguing to imagine that technology, fire, and the bed – played a role in its emergence. Now, unfortunately, it's impossible to know for sure at this point, given the evidence we have, but that is an interesting possibility. I mean, even today, uh, like, what do you think when you see, um, like, a, this, this, this setting, a roaring fireplace and, some, and the fur of some sort of animal placed in front of it? Like, oh, it, yeah. is, it, is in, it is on some level, and this is, of course, probably, a lot of this is probably just cultural uh, coding as well, but it's, it's an erotic situation. It's like there, a bed, there, a fire. Right. You're, you are in James Bond and the Russian spy's chalet. Yeah. <laughs> 
But there is a certain point at which we we don't have to speculate as much what was going on because we eventually do get some physical evidence from archaeology that can tell us something about the sleeping arrangements of our ancient human ancestors. Uh, and this would be especially during the Middle Stone Age of South Africa. Now, uh, this next part refers to a study by Lynn Wadley, Christine Sievers, Marion Bamford, Paul Goldberg, uh, Francesco Berna, and Christopher Miller called Middle Stone Age Bedding Construction and Settlement Patterns at Sibidu, South Africa. This was published in 2011 in Science. And according to Wadley et al., there are a number of interesting adaptations that all appear or emerge in the Middle Stone Age of South Africa. We notice the use of shell beads and engraving, uh, innovations in stone technology, the creation and use of compound adhesives, so types of glue, uh, heat treatment of rocks, and circumstantial evidence for snares and for bows and arrows. But along with this, uh, all, all this stuff in the same period, there's also early evidence of domestic innovations in bedding. And this uh, evidence of bedding comes from a place known as the Sibudu Rock Shelter. To read from Fagan and Durrani, quote, In a cliff above the Uthangathi River in South Africa, 40 kilometers north of Durban, and 15 kilometers from the Indian Ocean, modern people, homo sapiens, who were physically and mentally like ourselves, visited the shelter at least 15 times between 77,000 and 38,000 years ago and slept there. Thick swaths of grasses, sedges, and rushes that still grow by the river tell a story of regular but careful slumber. Now, about the archaeological find, uh, the archaeologist Lynn Wadley, the lead author on the study I mentioned, she said in a separate interview that was quoted uh, in an article I was reading, quote, The fossilized leaves were uncovered as a sheet of white plant matter overlying layers of sedge leaves and stems. I suspected whilst excavating them that the leaves were deliberately collected as part of bedding because all of the leaves were clearly the same taxon, meaning of the same plant. If leaves had simply blown into the site from the forest, there would have been several different tree species represented. So that's about the method of determining what this layer of vegetation that was repeatedly found buried in the ground meant. But Fagan and Durrani also mentioned that there was something careful going on about the construction of this ancient bedding here. Where does the, the careful part come in? Well, when you're sleeping in a cave or a rock shelter, it can be extremely difficult to keep your sleeping area clean and free of insects. I mean, obviously, you know, you're laying out there and you are you and all the stuff you're doing is probably pretty attractive to insects for multiple reasons. There are mosquitoes that want to bite you and suck your blood. There are probably other opportunistic insects that are attracted to whatever food you're eating around your dwelling space. You, you know, you're like a magnet for insect life. Mm. But the Stone Age inhabitants of this cave discovered a way to to improve their their odds with insects. Essentially, they invented an insect repellent mattress. Now, this mattress was made out of not just any leaves and grasses, but very importantly, it contained the aromatic leaves of the Cape Laurel tree or Cryptocaria woodii, which smells very nice to humans, I'm told. I'm, I'm not sure if I know what that would smell like. But uh, it also bears insecticidal compounds that can drive away mosquitoes and other pests. Mm. And this would have been not only to make the beds more pleasant, but to some extent, this was a question of life and death because insect-borne illnesses were and are a real threat to survival, especially to young children. 
But beyond that, there is also evidence that the people who lived here frequently burned their bedding and then replaced it with fresh layers of foliage, and this would be to kill any insects that had taken up residence despite the repellent leaves, and to get rid of trash and garbage, because one thing is quite clear from the archaeological remains, these people liked to eat in bed. The the (laughs) remains show that they would consume food on these grass mats that served as their beds, but they would also do other stuff. Tools, debris, and charred bone indicate that they probably worked and did other activities in bed because, hey, beds are nice. You know, it's a soft layer. Like, why leave if you don't have to? They also clearly liked large beds. Fagan and Durrani described these as king-sized, quote, most of the bedding covers at least three well-trodden square meters, Uh, And the fact that they were burning their bedding and replacing it at regular intervals shows early human use not just of fire for warmth, cooking, protection, and tool manufacture, but also for sanitation, which is an important milestone in the history of human hygiene. But I thought this was interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, one is uh, the ancient insight into the insect repellent properties of these particular leaves that would be woven into the bedding material to keep the insects out. But another thing is what kind of role this bed location would have played in ancient culture, uh, because at least in American culture today, we usually think of beds as, well, several things, private, right, hidden from mm-hmm. view. Like if you're showing somebody around your house, the, you know, you don't usually start with the bed. You might not even show them the bed at all. You think of beds as solitary or at least secluded with a single partner. We think of beds as primarily for sleep with secondary uses, maybe including sex and low energy activities like reading. But historically and around the world, none of this is a given. Like for much of human history and for many people even today, beds have been more public or in plain view, often shared by many people, sometimes even by strangers and used for lots of activities other than sleep and sex. Like beds have at many times in places been used for socializing, eating, preparing food, working on projects, etc. And I wonder what kind of difference does this make in our lives? Well, I was thinking about this and I'm thinking of thinking about like my current living situation and past living situations. And I, I think one thing we have to, to, to recognize is that in sort of a you know stereotypical American home, you have the bed, but you also have the couch. And mm-hmm. the, the couch is a place where we do a lot of the same things that we do in the bed. It's certainly where we, I, I don't know about you, but I certainly get in uh, the occasional nap on my couch. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there have been, you know, there have been times, there was particularly recently, I lived near some train tracks and there's a lot of bright lights that were visible through the, um, the bedroom window. So if it was too bright for me out there, I would come in, I would sleep on the couch as well because uh, it was darker in the living room. So, you know, you can, you can sleep on the couch. You can, but also I find that generally some of us that are maybe not okay with, say, eating dinner uh, in their bed, you, mm-hmm. you're probably perfectly okay eating dinner at your couch, like in front of the television, right? So right. <laughs> the couch is basically a bed. I mean, it's doing the, all the same things that a bed does, but it, I think in many cases, ends up absorbing some of the activities that then we, we don't do in bed proper, you know, like eating a meal. 
that's a really interesting point. I mean, I mean, one very obvious thing is the the way that a couch plays a role for uh, like visiting and socialization. Or socialization mm-hmm. that maybe means something different. Socializing yeah. uh, that would you know it's normal to like have friends over and all sit on the couch. It it would be kind of weird for a lot of people in America today to have friends over and have everybody get in your bed. Um, right, but. but- uh, but I, th- I think the cases where like you and I uh, have been on the road doing mm-hmm. podcast stuff, and then what do you what do you do? You're in a hotel room, and you got to oh, go over right, notes. Yeah. You end up in a hotel room is generally a space in which there is a bed. You know, you granted you can go to a business uh, center if they have one, and sometimes you have more of a little study in the room. But mm-hmm. a lot of times it ends up like sitting around on the bed laying out notes. I mean, that's a, I I think back to say college, I think a lot of us Mm -hmm. probably have this experience. Like you don't have a lot of space. Your bed ends up being a place where you can print, take printed sheets and organize them. Um, yeah, it it becomes a sort of a table half the time. Well, no, I, but I gotta say as an adult, I have felt awkwardness before when you're like trying to hang out, say like when we've been on the road for the show and had to hang out in a hotel room and you just have to sit on the bed. Like it feels weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this (laughs) feels like you're doing something wrong, but uh, no, I think, I think it's just like, you know, we're, we're enculturated to think, no, you don't do that with this kind of furniture. The furniture should be shaped a little bit differently in order to do what you're doing. Right. Uh, But then again, we also have like thinking of meals in bed, Breakfast in bed still has a certain attractiveness to it. I don't know. It's not something I want for myself, but I, I, mm. I am at least led to believe it is something that other people want. It's a good way to make a mess. <laughs> good way to uh, find, find crumbs later the following night. Yeah, well, yeah. But I don't know, but also like a good reminder to, to clean your bedding, right? If you're, if you're actively eating dinner in there, maybe the bedding gets cleaned more often. I don't know. Possibly. Or you could just burn it and start over. (laughs) Yeah, just to be sure. Well, so something, though, I was just thinking about that uh, maybe this is uh, psychologically insignificant, but I wonder if if, there are a lot of times in history when it's been more normal to gather around a bed and and socialize even for like adults with their own living space or something. Um, But I wonder if even in a culture where that's not very normal, does the effect somewhat reverse with how much we bring social media into our beds through mobile devices? Like, you know, you tweet from bed, you gram from bed and so forth. Mm, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, for one le- on one level, we have always been bringing media into our beds. Uh, social media being a, like a way of communicating. I mean, given that you're generally, I mean, unless you're talking about like a video, um, conferencing type thing if you're like actively doing like an instagram story or something from your bed i can see where that might be a little weird otherwise it's like you have are are people tagging themselves as being like this here's my missive from the bed Uh, (laughs) you know uh, uh, otherwise you could be in your bed you could be on the toilet uh nobody's gonna know isn't it weird how people just read tweets all day without even acknowledging that a good number of these are sent from the toilet yeah i I think just (laughs) <laughs> they should be required to tag them. You know, yeah. it's like, did you, where, where are you tweeting from? And the immediate drop down menu is toilet, um, urinal, or uh, I don't know, uh, I guess the bed would be on the list. Driving. Uh, train. Yeah. yeah driving. <laughs> Doctor's waiting room. Supposed to be paying attention in a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. 
All right, so we talked a little bit about the prehistory of betting. What uh, some some innovations in Middle Stone Age South Africa can can tell us about uh, Stone Age life, betting in uh, under rock shelters and things like that. But later on in history, we do get more kind of constructed beds, beds that become sort of permanent furniture within dwellings. Uh, so maybe we should uh, explore something about that. Yeah, so it, I, I immediately turned, of course, to Brian M. Fagan, uh, same Fagan that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. his uh, his book, The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. And there is indeed a section in there, uh, not about bedding, but about furniture. Uh, and this was written with Jeffrey P. Killen, uh, a specialist in ancient furniture and woodworking, particularly ancient Egyptian furniture. So they point out that to have furniture of any kind, you, of course, need specialized tools and the ability to work natural materials into new forms. Now, at first, you would have been limited to materials in your immediate surroundings, um, within your range at least, right? But eventually, trade opens uh, humans up to more materials, and this would expand what they were able to create. So they point to a particular example uh, that stands as uh, one of the earliest examples of furniture within a domestic environment. That's opposed to, say, within a tomb, as we'll explore in a bit. Mm-hmm. And this example certainly includes a bed. It's from the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland, circa 3100 to uh, 2500 BCE. Now, uh, Wood is scarce on the Orkney Islands, so stone was the primary building material. So there were stone dressers, stone cupboards, and yes, stone beds, or more particularly, stone bed boxes. Ah, okay. So this might be imagining something that looks a little bit more like a stone bathtub that you could fill with bedding material. Exactly. Yeah. And if, and if you, you travel to the Orkney Islands, you can, you can actually see an example of it. The site here in question is called Skara Bray. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, the domicile here features two beds, one smaller and one a bit larger, often interpreted as belonging to the husband and wife of the people who would have lived here. Now, we don't know for sure, but there, there might have been, based on the evidence, uh, there might have been a curtain of some sort separating the beds from the rest of the domicile, uh, though they would have had little privacy either way. And these stone beds would have been filled with a mattress of uh, bracken or heather, and for covers, they would have used animal skins. I feel like I should know what bracken and heather are. What are they? Well, by bracken, it's a, you know, it's a, a type of fern. Oh, okay. That's nice. And heather is a, an evergreen flowering plant. Okay. Okay. Oh, well, the brackens. Uh, I just looked up. They they have uh, their their immature fronds are fiddleheads, like fiddlehead ferns. Mm. Yeah. So you know that it doesn't doesn't sound horrible at all. I mean, I encourage you to look up examples of this uh, out there as you're listening to this episode, or if you have a chance after you listen to it, because it 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 looks fairly comfortable. I mean, like you say, it looks kind of like a stone bathtub, but you can imagine it filled with some some cushy mattress material, and it being you know not bad. Get me in there. I'll sleep in it. I'll sleep there. I'll do it. Now, I mentioned earlier that Killen's main uh, uh, area of focus is ancient Egypt. So that raises the question, what about ancient Egypt? Uh, well, Fagan and Killen write that ancient Egyptian homes were sparse, and most people could not afford wooden or certainly ivory objects or any kind of, you know, of, of fancy metalwork. So they would have had simple stools, tables, and screens made from bound reed stems and rush that were employed for most things, and that the bed consisted of, quote, a small platform built from mud brick. 
This is something I've noticed in looking at a bunch of uh, ancient beds and ancient bedding material is they don't always really seem to emphasize softness. A lot of mm-hmm. them are just sort of like hard platforms of various kinds. Yeah, and I guess part of that is uh, there is the idea that there would be something else there as well, mm-hmm. you know, that they would have uh, furs or, you know, or, or vegetation that would be added into the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then but then also, I guess it's kind of like raising something up, right, creating a platform on which to sleep that is a little separate. That's not quite the floor, mm-hmm. which if you're thinking about, you know, I'm just imagining like all of the kind of things that could happen. In a space like this, you have water, say, running in, or you have, um, you know, any kind of, um, you know, insect or or crab or whatnot that wanders crab. into. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm mainly thinking back to, um, yeah, my, my honeymoon when I was in this like little beachside place, and there the crabs would come in at night, and oh. they would just be all over the floor. They just came right in under the the the, the door, and so you had to watch where you step. But of course, they they're not going to get up in the bed, but they are going to like crawl the walls a bit. You've mentioned that before. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm sure that would make uh, midnight trips to the bathroom a little bit scary. Yeah. Well, you know, more like a video game. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, just as a yeah reminder, it's like it, it makes sense to maybe lift your sleeping area up a little bit from the surrounding uh, floor or, uh, or ground. Well, I'd imagine also uh, heat heat plays a role there because uh, sleeping on the mm. floor is usually going to be cold, right? Well, we'll come back to that because there's, a, there's a, a wonderful example from uh, from, from Chinese history. But as for the ancient Egyptians, Fagan and Killen mentioned that there were crude bed frame attempts during the pre-dynastic period, 5500 to 3100 BCE, which they describe as bound tree branches and twigs. But it wasn't until the following dynastic period that copper woodworking tools began to make a real difference in what was possible. And this resulted in wooden stools, frames and carcasses or cabinet frameworks. Uh, Simple joint cuts in woodworking were key here, but material played a big role as well. At first, they were limited by the wood uh, that was available to them, which was sparse and poor in quality. But by the mid-third millennium BCE, Syrian and Lebanese timber provided far improved uh, raw materials, and Egyptian furniture surged in quality. Hmm. And we have some surviving examples of this sort of thing. And again, this is coming via what was put into the tombs of royal individuals. And does it seem like that that would mainly be because a tomb provided an opportunity for furniture to be preserved across the ages as opposed to just sort of like chucked when it fell into disrepair? Right. I mean, even though the the wooden furniture in question, um, you know, basically turned to dust. Uh, at least the dust and the pieces are still all in the same place. It's like far easier to put things back together again. Yeah, so the key bed from this period is the bed of Heteferes from uh, around 2600 BCE, which was buried uh, uh, with the queen in her uh, Giza tomb. So this would have been a fine wooden bed frame with a portable bed canopy. The wood had just decayed to powder, but Egypt, uh, Egyptologist George uh, Reisner was able to reconstruct it from the remaining metallic parts. And you can look up images of this. It's, I mean, it it, it looks nice. It's, it's just a, a a wooden flat bed with a like a head. You look at it and you you instantly recognize like that's a bed. That's the invention. That is the thing. Now, one thing that we should come back to in just a minute, uh, but it's an interesting visual feature of this bed, is it has this little spike at one end. It's almost like a like an eagle atop a pedestal or a little Y-shaped uh, uh, stud of some kind. I wonder what that's yes. for. Yeah, the, the Egyptian headrest, Yeah, which is very Y-shaped or kind of 
slingshot frames shaped. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute because that's certainly one of the more interesting artifacts you tend to see when you see um, you know, ancient Egyptian beds uh, in, or, or reconstructions uh, of them in museums. And you think, what what was that? How did that how did that work? Can I imagine myself using such a thing at night? But we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, some of the other beds that they mentioned, there's a really nice folding Z-type bed frame with metal hinges found in the tomb of Tutankhamun from the 14th century BCE. You can you can look up images of this as well, but kind of think of the way that some beach uh, uh, recliners fold up, and that's mm-hmm. basically what you have here. Now, uh, some of these ancient Egyptian beds, they were made to be not flat but at an angle, right? Uh, is the Tutankhamun mm-hmm. example like that? It would be kind of like slightly inclined toward the headrest. I think so. Now, the Hetepheres example from earlier is is pretty, uh, or is at least reconstructed as being uh, pretty flat across the top. But yeah, I think some of them had kind of a, 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 a slant to them. It looks like it might have a slight incline. Uh, yeah. I've read some of them had a slight incline and then often uh, had a, like a little wall down at the bottom that you would put your feet on that would prevent you, I guess, from sliding out of the bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting to remind ourselves of the role that gravity plays in sleep. Uh, I'll come back to that in a bit. But, but you know, sleeping in a bed is very much a, a gravity-dependent uh, 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 mode of human behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's get back to the, the headrest, though, because, uh, there, yeah, there's a lot that's interesting here. Um, it's one of the most notable aspects of royal Egyptian sleeping arrangements. Often you'll find gilded or ornate examples because, yeah, the ancient Egyptians did not use pillows, but instead used a wooden or stone stand for their head. Why does that not sound very comfortable? Uh, that, I mean, that's the thing I always, I always wondered when I, when I looked at it, it's like, I, I, I tried to imagine what that was like, you know, cause I would think, well, wouldn't you just fold your arms up under your head instead? Like, why is, why is this, um, uh, a, a good choice to make? And I, I found an interesting article about this from, uh, Kira Foley. She wrote an article for the John Hopkins Archaeological Museum. And, uh, she points out that Egyptian headrests had two purposes, one practical and the other, um, uh, apotropaic. So, first of all, they did the same thing that a pillow does. They account for the gap between your head and shoulders during sleep. But they also were items of of apotropaic magic. In other words, they served to protect the individual from evil influences during sleep. Ah, so they were kind of like a like almost like an amulet, but a feature of furniture that served the same purpose. Well, both actually, because they they start off as being this thing that is seen as a a, a magical item of key importance, like so important that when you die, you are buried with your headrest in order that you can take it with you to provide protection in the next life. Mm. Uh, but eventually, by the the third intermediate period, this would have been 747 BCE, they start using amulets in the shape of headrests instead. Like the thing becomes a symbol of the thing, and you take this with you into into the grave for the same purpose. Interesting. Yeah, so it's like a little. You can look up images of this amulet, and it it's basically just a small version of the headrest. The headrest made into a symbol. You know, it looks. Uh, you know, it look, looks a little bit like if you don't know what it is, you might think, well, it looks kind of like a saddle on a stand or something. And uh, Foley writes that uh, the Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, elaborates that these amulets could protect you from decapitation in the afterlife. Whoa. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I had to look this up. Uh, uh, it's uh, it often referred to as the uh, the chapter of the pillow uh, in the Book of the Dead. And uh, this particular example, I believe, is from the Wallace uh, Budge translation from 1895. I'm just going to read a part of this. Uh, uh, you, can, you can look up the, the whole text online, but it goes, Son of Hathor, Nesert, Nesertet, who giveth back the head after the slaughter. Thy head shall not be carried away from thee after the slaughter. Thy head shall never, never be carried away from thee. <laughs> That's the headrest guarantee. <laughs> now, one of the, the big things for many Westerners when we view Egyptian headrests is, is, again, not the idea that they might protect us from evil, but rather that this sort of thing is comfortable at all during sleep. Well, I, I ran across a, a wonderful article about this very topic. This is from the, um, the Glencairn Museum in Pennsylvania. They have a nice article with illustrations on this topic from Jennifer Hauser-Wegner, Ph.D. Associate Curator, Egyptian Section, Penn Museum. And in it, she points out several key facts about the use of, of headrests and this headrest in, these headrests in particular during sleep. So for starters, uh, this wasn't just an Egyptian thing. Uh, ceramic pillows were used during the Ming Dynasty of China, uh, 1368 through 1644. She mentions that this was a time when elaborate female hairstyles were fashionable. So a headrest in these cases would protect an elaborate hair treatment from what we would think of as bedhead today. Oh, interesting. And then headrests are not just an ancient or even historical thing. She points out that we see them used to this day in parts of Africa. And it, it comes down to two key reasons. First, there's the elaborate hair issue thing. Uh, quote, groups whose cultural expressions involve the wearing of elaborate hairstyles. Uh, these are the types of cultures where we may see the use of a headrest at night. And this would have included the Egyptians. Uh, secondly, there's climate. So if you use a traditional fabric pillow, you know, as well as we know, that the cold side of the pillow is where it's at, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a hot climate, uh, this feeling, the feeling of the cold pillow, that may be harder to come by. A headrest provides a cooler sleeping experience by lifting the head up from the sleeping surface and allowing air to flow under and around the head and neck. Nice. Okay. I think I understand now. That makes a lot of sense. And then another reason uh, uh, they mentioned, this comes back to what you were talking about earlier with the burning of the bedding. Organic fabric pillows may have posed more of an infestation risk, but a solid headrest, uh, that would have uh, removed this particular threat. You know, you might have to worry with the rest of your bedding, but at least the head region is, is safe and secure. Oh, this is uh, sort of the same logic for why I've, I was kind of grossed out when we were reading about in the history of the toilet that there were these cushioned toilets with like fabric that you, for the seat area. Which just seemed awful. Like, wouldn't it be better to just have like hard, non-porous surfaces that are easy to clean? <laughs> and I guess the same that's true of a toilet would apply to a bed. Uh, they're probably equally like germ-infested and gross. Yeah, but you know, if you if you have just um, you know this this wooden uh, platform on which to lay your head, uh, yeah, that removes uh, at least some of the risk here. But it still leaves the, that remaining question, was this comfortable? Is this a comfortable way to sleep? Well, Wegner takes the extra step of testing it out herself in this mm. article. So um, she constructed a one-to-one -one replica of one of the headrests found in the Penn Museum's collection. And I just want to read her results here. Uh, she, she writes it up uh, rather nicely. Quote, 
The experiment clarified a few things for me. Firstly, I had always assumed that the curved support of the headrest could be used to support either the head or the neck. This was an incorrect assumption. The headrest can only be used to support the head, not the neck. Trying to use the headrest on one's neck was an uncomfortable impossibility. There is a reason it is called a headrest. (laughs) Secondly, the headrest, when positioned correctly on the head, can be used fairly comfortably while resting on one's back. Many representations of the headrest in use, such as in the Glencairn figurine, show the sleeper resting on their side. Again, it was possible to position the headrest in such a way just above one's ear that this pose was also not completely uncomfortable. I can also let any stomach sleepers know that using a headrest and trying to position it on the forehead while facing downwards is impossible. There seems to be some evidence that the headrests in ancient Egypt were padded or wrapped with linen when used. I would imagine this would make the headrest even more comfortable. As enlightening as this experiment was, I do not think I will trade my trusty pillow for a wooden headrest anytime soon. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if it's a it's a ma- if it's a matter of getting used to it, or if it's a matter of maybe like we don't know exactly how it was used. It sounds like it's a it's it's a combination of those. Yeah, like like there are particularly what particular ways to use it and not to use it, and you have to take into account that you would have like added um, uh, you know padding and whatnot. But kudos to Wegner for for taking the you know the the step of trying it out uh, for herself. It, it makes me wonder too. It's just the kind of thing we could see make a comeback. You know, mm. I mean, I'm surprised. I mean, on on one hand, it's something humans do and certainly uh, did in the past as well so it's the the kind of uh sleep choice that could make a comeback you could also imagine it becoming fashionable be, becoming the next big thing that you buy uh you know online or you know it, order with a podcast code it's the next squatty potty well and then on the other hand you could imagine someone coming up with outrageous claims for why like this is the this is the way to sleep you know oh, it'll give you the yeah, yeah. the enlightened mind of the ancient egyptian or something you know uh some sort of uh you know spiritual or pseudoscientific uh reason for why this is the best way to sleep yeah like some chiropractor's theory about how pillows are responsible for all western diseases now now wegner uh you know very much and is someone who normally uses a you know a soft pillow and try it out using uh, uh one of these uh, headrests i would be interested to hear from any listeners out there who either have tried this same experiment or have any experience using a headrest regularly uh I, yeah i'd i'd love to, I'd, I'd love to hear the reverse you know someone who regularly uses a headrest a hard headrest and then tries a soft pillow because i i mean i'm very particular about my pillows i need a certain amount of firmness otherwise i'm not getting that that neck support yeah agreed now, uh, Fagan and Killen, uh, back in, in their, uh, their write-up, they mentioned some other examples of note. The ancient Greeks developed a bed that was larger and higher than the Egyptian bed called a, a, a cline. And it was the sort of thing that you could lay on, prop yourself up on a pillow on, and, of course, enjoy a hearty meal upon. More eaten in bed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, I don't know if you were uh, in the city at that, this point, but it's, there, was a, a, there was a restaurant in Atlanta for a while called Bed. And all of the tables, or at least a number of the tables, were beds. And that was the whole attraction. It was like a big <laughs> canopy bed, and you hung out on it, and you ate. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I never went, but I was, I've was i heard about it. Oh, maybe I'm being unfair. That strikes me as very gimmicky, but I don't know. I'd give it a shot if somebody I trusted said the food was good. <laughs> 
Now, uh, we mentioned uh, you know, the idea of a platform and temperature earlier. Um, the, the ancient Chinese, Fagan and, and, and Killen Wright, were a mat-level culture, so they used lower, simply wooden bed frames. And they don't really get into this, but one of the cooler sleep innovations in Chinese culture, at least in northern China, was the, the Kang, uh, an integrated home heating system for cooking, sleeping, domestic heating, and ventilation. It's still apparently widely used in northern China. And it's a heated, uh, raised bed pat platform that is uh, thought to have its origins in Neolithic designs. But for for a long time, basically what you have is you have hot exhaust from a fire housed in another room circulating through this platform of stone or brick, uh, creating a heated platform on which to sleep, but also to work and to live. Hmm. If you, if you end up looking at it, you, you probably have seen images of this, uh, of a Chinese household, uh, either contemporary or historic, and maybe not realize exactly what you're looking at. But it's like a ra- it looks like a raised corner or portion of a room, uh, but it is also heated. Okay. Now, uh, I, one quick note about something we're not really going to get into on these, in this episode, and that is the hammock. Uh, because the hammock, uh, I was looking into this a little bit, it seems to have its own really interesting history, one that we could potentially come back and discuss in greater detail. But it's an example of a hanging bed that is based on fabric technology. And so we see examples of its use in the ancient world, as well as among the fiber technology using peoples of the of the Americas. We should definitely come back to the hammock. Yeah, I love I love a good hammock. All right, we're going to take another break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So I want to come back to some of what we were talking about earlier about just sort of the basic function of a bed. Like, what does a bed do? Um, you know, because it, it is essentially a kind of nest, like like the nest of virtually any terrestrial animal you can name. Um, if not nest construction, then at least nest behavior. But we also have to think of the human bed in terms of physiological and technocultural adaptation. So I was looking uh, for, for some examples of this. I was looking at a 2015 article in Evolutionary Anthropology titled Sleep Intensity and the Evolution of Human Cognition by David R. Sampson and Charles L. Nunn, which considers the view that our, our species sleep architecture is in accord with that of other animals and presents and they present an alternate hypothesis that human sleep is highly derived relative to that of other primates. So the idea that they present here is that that human sleep is superior to that of other primates. It's shorter. It's deeper. It exhibits a higher proportion of uh, of, of REM sleep than expected. Uh, they call it the sleep intensity hypothesis that early humans would have experienced selective pressure to fulfill sleep needs in the shortest time possible. Hmm. Interesting. So what would that selective pressure be? Other that was different than other animals. Well, they say part of it was, of course, survival from predation, uh, like all animals uh, would have had to deal with, uh, as well as from human violence, uh, the violence of other humans. But it also, this would have, by being able to get like maximum but short sleep, it would have allowed them more time to engage in social interactions. Again, we're talking, we're talking earlier about these, these 
these creatures that were living around fires, sleeping among fires, uh, having this enhanced social uh, time. But then part of that also becomes, you know, it becomes essential to humans that we're transmitting skills and knowledge uh, to uh, the next generation of humans uh, and to each other. And so the less time you're sleeping, the more time you have to do that. And most of that knowledge, I mean, pretty much, I guess, all of the knowledge and skills that you're dealing with at that point are survival skills and survival knowledge. Hmm. Uh, this is one of those hypotheses that would that it seems like it would be hard to prove something like this, but it do, it is interesting, and I often find myself at least intuitively sympathetic to um, explanations for in human origins that have a lot to do with social groups and social relationships. Yeah, it seems very likely to me that it's actually social pressures that were some of the the dominant pressures on early humans. Yeah, I mean, it, it also lines up with the old adage: "You snooze, you lose." Right? Yeah. Uh, they also point out that that deeper sleep might have also been key to the consolidation of the skills in question. So, you know, the more you're 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 out of bed, the more you're potentially learning new skills. And then, if sleep is is in, indeed important to the consolidation of those skills in in the mind, then it, it it pays to have deep sleep when you are sleeping. But of course, in order to get the sleep they needed, our ancestors would have needed social and physical security. And beds are just part of that equation, both in terms of the general sort of bed that primates make and the technological bed that humans developed. They also point to an interesting study that uh, Samson, uh, along with uh, Rob Shoemaker, wrote in 2015, looking at how nests and sleep enhance cognitive performance in non-human great apes. They, quote, quantified the sleeping platform complexity each night, measuring it as an index of the number of material items available to construct a bed, and found that complexity co-varied positively with reduced nighttime motor activity, less fragmentation, and greater sleep efficiency. Uh, I think one of the authors here, David Sampson, is also one of the authors of that study about chimpanzees preferring certain kinds of wood for their sleeping arrangements, uh, the, the wood of the Ugandan ironwood tree. Oh, that, well, that would make sense. Yeah, because I did look him, look him up and uh, a lot of his work seems to revolve around um, you know, sleep, cognition and, uh, and primates. Interesting. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I bring this up not so much to, to lobby for their hypothesis here, but I do think it's a very interesting hypothesis, but, but rather to use it as a way of rethinking exactly what role a bed plays in our lives. You know, as part of this suite of techno-cultural adaptations that support human sleep cycles, sleep cycles that, that you know, very well could, could be essential to, um, uh, to, to many of the other you know, cultural and technical uh, um, uh, adaptations that end up taking place afterwards. Yeah, on one hand, I think like, well, okay, so I, the bed doesn't seem like a realm of technology that's ripe to change much in the future. But then again, I don't know. I mean, the human sleep patterns have changed before. I think there's like, there's some evidence that throughout much of history, people slept uh, at kind of different times and in different segments than they often do, at least, you know, that we're familiar with in the in America today. Uh, and so, so I don't know, maybe there is more room for change in the technology support structure of our sleeping habits than, than I would be led to assume. Uh, I wonder, yeah, I guess one of the questions would be like, what would we intentionally change about human sleep? You know, we've all had those, those sort of lingering fantasies, like what if I didn't have to sleep? Oh, I mm -hmm. wouldn't have to own a bed. I could just, I don't know, wander around. <laughs> not, not pay rent, but um, I could doom scroll all night long. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I I certainly don't feel that way now. I'm kind of like, oh man, sleep. That's 
Um, you know, when it's when sleep is good and, uh, you know, and you're not dealing with nightmares or awkward dreams, it's a pretty great place to be. But 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 I guess what one of the things like we can sort of fantasize about what we want sleep to be. But one of the problems is that we don't have a perfect understanding of what sleep really is, like what what its key role is for uh, for human existence, you know, Um yeah, uh, we know, know it. We know it's necessary. We, we know, know it's, it's necessary. Yes, uh, but we but we don't fully understand all of it, all the roles it plays in human health and psychology and all that. Yeah, I mean, is it? Yeah, is it defragmenting the the, the hardware? Is it as uh, David Eagleman hypothesizes? Is it um, is it is it is it tied to um, uh, to to, to uh, neural visual uh, processes? Uh, you know, we're we're not entirely sure. So before we start messing with it and and reshaping sleep in our image, it would pay to to understand exactly what it is doing. Oh, humans would never intentionally mess with their sleeping patterns through technology, say by like <laughs> bringing a small blue light device into their bed and staring at it for four <laughs> hours before they go to sleep. Oh, one other thing. Longtime listeners of the show remember previous co-host Christian Sager, who joined me on topics such as Timothy Leary, Wicked Problems, and our creepy pasta episodes. Well, Christian has an awesome new project, Corridor Magazine, a new horror magazine that brings the weird worlds of short fiction, art, comics, and essays together under one roof. It's going to feature a new original work of science fiction by me titled Leviathan Sea. Uh, I'm very excited about it. It touches on some stuff to blow your mind topics. I think uh, many of you will dig it, as well as Christian's story, Rescue and Alter. It'll also feature fiction by other names uh, you may be familiar with, such as the incredible horror author Christy DeMeester. And you'll also find uh, works in there by authors you might know, such as Ed Grabanowski. You might recognize him from his work with Stuff You Should Know. As far as art goes, this is going to be a beautiful publication with work from, from such artists as J.M. Jogranis, who uh, creates these amazing woodcut style images. Uh, I'm super into his work, uh, but also the psychedelic art of Malachi Ward. But for this magazine to actually exist as a digital and physical product, they have to, they have to reach their Kickstarter goal. And as of this recording, they're not quite there yet. So if you want to get your eyes or hands on Corridor, you'll need to back it. And the easiest way to, to do that is to head on over to kickstarter.com and search for Corridor Magazine. Again, go to kickstarter.com, search for Corridor Magazine, and you'll find it, back it, and then you can get your, your hands and your eyes on this, uh, this very promising project. I'm, uh, I'm super excited about it. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode here. But like I say, we may come back in the future to talk about hammocks, etc. This is this is an invention-based episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, continuing the legacy of the show that we did for, what, about a year, uh, mm-hmm. titled Invention. Uh, you can still find all those episodes uh, online as a podcast that you can subscribe to and download, etc. Uh, but we're con- we're continuing that here. We're going to continue to do invention episodes from time to time as uh, we enjoy doing them, and uh, we're led to believe you enjoy listening to them as well. This book by Fagan and Durrani about the history of sleeping habits is interesting, and I think there's stuff in it that we could come back to again in the future. 
Absolutely. I mean, sleep, again, is one of those things we all can relate to. We, we all uh, have, uh, have some bit of insight there. And likewise, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you've ever used a headrest, if you have thoughts on different beds and different cultures, if you've you know, tried out a, a wide variety of them and would like to, uh, to share what works, what doesn't work, uh, yeah, we, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. You can always find us by going to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That'll take you to the iHeart listing for our show. And if you look around on that page long enough, you'll find uh, a little bit that says store. Click on that. That'll take you to a t-shirt shop where you can buy some shirts or bags or stickers or what have you that have our logo or various uh, monsters or fun designs on them. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 